Welcome to the next episode of Get Schooled by Reeves and Ford, where we discuss all things college admissions. Joel and I, we've been having conversations about college admissions for years, and now we bring those to you. Our goal is to provide information to you, the listener, about the world of college admissions, the processes involved, and the current issues that are a part of the journey to post-secondary education. I'm Chris Reeves, independent college counselor, and I'm here with Joel Ford, school counselor at Connor High School in Hebron, Kentucky. With us today is Mike Piergowski, English teacher at Indian Hill High School in Cincinnati, Ohio, and podcast producer, who is a walking thesaurus and can come up with synonyms to the word wonky on command. You can. Chris, I'm going to tell you, I'm super pumped. I know. I already pumped. know what you're going to say. Okay. I'm super pumped about this episode. Uh, we're going to delve today a bit into the world of American politics and policy. Uh, as a former social studies teacher and still a social studies teacher at heart, I love talking about government, civics, history, anything to do with social studies. So this episode is going to take me back to my roots as a student and as a teacher. Heck, this is going to be better than popping popcorn and watching the State of the Union address every year. Not that I know anyone that does that. I know someone who does that, and I'm and I'm listening to him right now. There's nothing wrong with it, by the way. Nothing wrong with it at all. I oh, I know. I, know. I do it, it every together. year. Doesn't matter who the president is. I'm popping some popcorn and watching. Must see TV. I, I know. I know. Before we before we get into today, I just kind of in a in a, in a thought and spirit of reflection in some ways. Uh, but even before that, last episode was on early decision. And it was our first episode. We actually got emails and, and, feedback, and feedback from people. Um, one, and, and you've seen them. I forward them to you. Right. But one, one was it was cool because one was not necessarily agreeing with with the things we had said, and and that you know early early decision was not the worst thing ever. And I didn't quite understand it completely, but it was if these people get in, then there's spots for these people here and there and right. uh, whatnot. So there are there are. You're allowed to have a different opinion, I guess. I just absolutely, <laughs> but I, I still will never be convinced that ED is a great thing. <laughs> but there was something in our math that was wrong that someone else pointed out, and it actually made our case even stronger. <laughs> An English teacher and a social studies teacher getting math wrong. Who knew? I don't. I mean, really. Right. Right. <laughs> and I mean, I, I I see myself as kind of a kind of a geek, but. But still, I didn't. I didn't do this one right. What we didn't consider, Joel, was the additional deferred students going back in the regular decision round. So if you add that clump of students to it, then you divide by. Let's see, divide the. Here's my math being great. Oh, you're, you're dividing the number of of admitted students by the total number of applications reviewed. That pile is bigger, bigger than we because you than have we more did. students to review again. Right. So if someone is deferring five thousand students, then then your, you know, the denominator is bigger, and the selectivity is even even tougher in the regular decision round. And that's right. something that just didn't even occur to us as we talked about that. But right. great point. Yeah. Great point. I'm just excited we we uh, we got some responses back. Um, yeah. Yeah. If we're sparking thought and sparking. Uh, sparking conversation out there. Uh, my buddy Ross Grippy, he was um, texting me as he was listening through the episode. So I kept getting these texts. What about this? What about that? Oh, Rick's right about this part. Yeah, he's on point here. And uh, it was cool. It was cool just to know that you know even one of my friends was was out there listening and engaged well, in our megasode. Right. <laughs> it was an hour and a half long. You know, and we're coming up on our two-year anniversary. And obviously, people who've listened to us, they know how the world of college admissions has changed in the past two years. But I think that's one of the things when we started this, you know, and I think we've said it before, you know, Chris just calls me up one day and it's like, hey, we should do a podcast or I want to do a podcast. You want to do it with me? Or, let's do a podcast. Let's yeah. do a podcast. Like, I think I think in the beginning, we just thought it would be us and Maybe our spouses and, you know, right. maybe, maybe somebody would accidentally, you know, come upon it. Uh, and two years later to actually have like professionals, you know, engaging in conversation. And, and you know, I know I've had I've had parents 
um, mention the podcast, you know, that, that they've listened to it and, and some of the guests we've had, they really enjoyed and that sort of thing. And to me, that's one of the biggest surprises of this whole project um, is that people are seemingly listening to what we have to say. <laughs> it's funny that, that that's a surprise for us, right? but it's true because we did it. You know, we don't have sponsors. We don't, we don't really want them. Uh, we want to say what we want to say without being beholden to, to anyone. We're not right. trying to make money on this. Uh, I, I don't know. I'd almost hesitate, hesitate or not hesitate to say we're, it's a public good right. in our minds, but really it's, it's, it's also selfish in that, I just like doing it. I'm not talented at a lot of things, many, many things. Uh, I have no musical talent, no artistic talent, but I feel like I have, I have opinions that, that make sense. I feel like I could be pretty down to earth about stuff. And I just saw podcasting as a way I felt like I could express myself in this. And that's where, that's where the phone call came to you, right. which is, dude, we talk about this stuff all the time. Why aren't we recording it? And right. that's the whole impetus of, of the podcast. And I guess as long as people uh, seem to be listening to it, which um, sadly we we both stalk our our service that provides our rating numbers for us uh, probably daily. But uh, as long as people seem to be listening to what we say, uh, I know we're both having a good time doing it. Oh yeah, I look at I look at our I look at SoundCloud's like listens way more than I should. Right, like, like to admit to, and I collected that data you wanted because you felt like this episode, this last episode before this one uh, that we're recording now on early decision was our fastest starting. Oh yeah, and I ran those numbers. In our first episode in the first four days, we had 45 people listen. Woo! We were pumped, dude. Like, yeah. dude, 45 people listen to our podcast. That's, what, that's more people great. than we're related to. Like somebody's <laughs> actually wanting to listen to this. That's, yeah. that's right. <laughs> and then, and then uh, let's see. I think when Angel I, – I said the numbers here. So I think episode 14 may have been Angel. It was. And I think and 182 people listened in the first four days. And then 221 people listened in the first four days of – of the last episode, which, you know, Joe Rogan probably has, he's just a little bit of a million in the first half hour. Right. And, and it's, you know, whatever. I don't, I don't care. Ours is niche. It's cool. It's my favorite subject. And, and we're, if you count the on-campus episodes, Joel, we're at 20. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I, I reflect on just to wrap this up, I guess I reflect on how much I have learned by, by doing this. Uh, so many things I, I just didn't understand about college admissions, and I'm not ashamed to admit there's so much I didn't understand. That that's the selfish part of why we do this is to learn stuff, um, and it just it makes us better and and helps our kids out, and that's ultimately what we're about. So. Well, I know you as a counselor, and I hope you know me as a counselor. That deep down, we just want to be better for our students anyway. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, so, and I want students, and that's why I don't want sponsors because I want to keep telling my students to listen to it. And when I do trainings with my juniors, I'll say, Hey, if you want to learn a little more about this topic, go to episode seven, go to episode 12 right. and, and without thinking that it's generating an income or something like sure. that. So, well, good deal. Awesome. So, yeah, um, nice reflection. Yeah. So let's take a quick break. And when we get back, um, the, the listeners won't know this, but we are recording on the morning of Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, so when we get back, we're going to introduce our guest for episode XVIII. Uh, we'll be right <laughs> back after this short break. Welcome back to Get Schooled by Reeves and Ford. Before we introduce our guest, who will be with us for the majority of the episode, uh, Joel, let's take a let's take a quick look quick look back at 2020 in terms of the world of college admissions. Today's episode will be looking forward into the future of college admissions, but we can't know where we're going until we know where we've been. Mm -hmm. oh, that sounds like something you'd say, Joel. Absolutely. So quickly. Let's take a look at some of the big events and issues in college admissions for 2020, and then let's say goodbye to 2020 for good. 
Agreed. All Agreed. right. So, so let's start off with finishing the 2019-20 school year on a virtual platform. Well, okay. Uh, starting the 2020-2021 school year on a virtual platform. Uh, the shutting down of campus tours and overnight visits. The struggle to counsel students through online means. The struggle to recruit students through strictly online means. The rise of test optional admissions as policy more than a fad. Uh, the continued look at racial discrepancies and inequalities, both in terms of college admissions and in terms of society at large, with a push toward social justice and true equality. The continuance of Varsity Blues scandal, including the prison sentence of Lori Laughlin and others. The ending of the Department of Justice inquiry with NACAC, which changed the code of ethics from mandated ethical codes to best practices. Oh, and there was a presidential election in 2020. So the end of a current administration and the entrance of a new administration, including a new leader at the Department of Education. The upcoming simplification of the FAFSA, which was passed in December 2020. The continued overarching question uh, of whether or not college is, is quote unquote, worth it in today's world. You know, it's kind of a slow year last year, wasn't it, in terms of uh, (laughs) (laughs) nothing going on at all. Um, So armed with those topics, uh, let's introduce today's guest. Today's guest is David Hawkins, uh, newly named Chief Education and Policy Officer. I hope I got the title right at the National Association for College Admission Counseling in Arlington, Virginia where he has been since March of 2000. Prior to that, David was a Congressional Affairs Specialist with the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, a Research Director with the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. He holds bachelor's and master's degrees in government from the College of William & Mary. And in the world of college admissions, he is known simply as the NACAC wonk, complete with his own logo. Chris, we know that when you have your own logo, you are officially big time. So um, it's true. It's true. It's true. When you have the even logo, you, that's it. So even th- when you bribe a student to make your own logo <laughs> for you. No kidding. So, uh, David, as we always say, welcome to what will be the pinnacle of your professional career, being on the Get Schooled podcast with the two of us. Thank you, Joel and Chris. Anytime I'm able to hang out with you guys, it is a highlight of my day, week, month, year. So thank you for having me on. <laughs> Well, let's go back. Let's go back to Cleveland 2011, July Leadership Developed Institute. You, me, Mike Rose, in the biggest ballpark chili dogs I've ever seen. <laughs> Those were good times. And then, and then follow that up with Sink Beer in Las Vegas the next year. Chris, I think I'm. I think just yesterday I finished digesting that chili dog. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're probably right. Me too. <laughs> It was it was it was fun and 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 you know the point the point being I mean I it's been an absolute pleasure just knowing knowing you working working with you and you know it's easy my personality I guess sometimes is getting away from the serious stuff and just like being goofy but at the same time like I I I think everyone kind of looks up to you and really appreciates what you do in this, in this business. And I, and I know we're going to get to this with your personality, but I know you probably prefer being behind the scenes and doing like the real work, but the work you do is, is extremely important and affects way more people than, than anyone probably realizes. I, I feel like this episode is going to be heavier. I talk too much. This episode is going to be heavier on Joel. Joel's, Joel's the history guy. Uh, and I'll, I'll do my best to sit back some and let, and let you all talk, talk business and talk shop here. Yeah. So, and I, you know, going along with what Chris said, we always try and and gear these episodes toward students, toward parents, toward professionals. Um, And so I think we've got a lot of good things to cover uh, for our listeners, no matter what perspective they're coming from. But um, I guess let's start right at the beginning. Um, Your job title talks about educational content and policy. Uh, Tell our listeners what your job entails and what you enjoy about working uh, in that job. Yeah, you know, uh, educational content and policy is a, is a pretty brief way of, of describing the, the, the range of things that I've ended up doing over 20 years for the association. But generally speaking, you know, I, I, 
oversee the education and training programs, which, you know, we do a lot to try to help college admission professionals uh, continue to learn throughout their lifetime. Now, that's just, you know, this, this field changes so quickly. Uh, and there's so many people coming in and out of it. You know, a lot of, a lot of admission officers are pretty young and, and uh, the, the, those that first start out need a lot of education. So we try to do that. Uh, we do research on the field. Uh, our state of college admission report is something we try to, to uh, put out every year so that we can tell the public some of the real core uh, truths and, and, and bust some myths about the college admission process. I also oversee advocacy and policy. Uh, you know, there is, there is quite a bit of, of policy that, that affects people's daily lives, that affects their, their, their higher education pursuit, uh, whether, they, whether they know it or not. So that's something we, we stay on top of. And then finally, uh, we now have a new uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion office because that's, you know, if we didn't, if we, if we didn't already know it before last year, uh, we, have a, we have a pretty serious uh, equity and diversity and inclusion problem in this country, and we need to continue to, to wrestle with that. Um, you know, in terms of what I enjoy doing, though, you know, Chris, I'm, I'm going to throw it right back at, at you and Joel. You know, I look up to you guys. I, I have worked at this job for 20 years, and everything I've learned about college admission has come from, from you all. And, and uh, I like to describe uh, our association as, as a hug-intensive uh, endeavor. Uh, I, you know, college admission counseling professionals are one of the greatest groups of folks you'll ever meet. And, uh, it, it, every year just, just gets better. Uh, so, you know, w- what I enjoy most about this job is, is working with the members, is working with the people who are working with students and families every day, uh, to try to help them make this transition to college. It is a passionate group, isn't it? It absolutely is. And how did you transition from working with HUD, uh, in that department to deciding, Hey, I'd like to go toward more of a, a private, um, private entity, um, route. Yeah. You know, my, my job at HUD, uh, was a political appointment. So I was appointed, officially appointed by president Clinton to, to serve as a congressional affairs specialist at, at HUD. Uh, and you know, working in politics is, uh, is a merry-go-round and it's going, uh, it's going a million miles an hour. It is, a, it is a, it is it is a rigorous and, and tiring endeavor. Uh, and so I, you know, I, I had worked in politics for about six years at that point. Uh, and I started just to look for, for ways. And, you know, politics also is, is you don't get to get very deep into many issues. And, and, and I, I prefer, as Chris said, I kind of prefer to, to get, get down deep into issues and really think about them and reflect on them. And so I was just looking for something a little more substantive. So I found NACAC. Uh, and, and they hired me originally as the director of government relations. So I was, you know, I was basically going to do a similar job at NACAC as I had done it at HUD for, for a couple of years. Uh, so, you know, and then after, after the first few years, I eventually started taking on more research and then, you know, like a snowball, I sort of accumulated more, more responsibilities, more roles as, as NACAC grew. So it was really quite a, I, I never expected that I was going to be at NACAC for 20 years, but, but like I said, it's such an engaging topic and it's such an engaging group of people that. Uh, that the transition was really seamless. Cool beans. Chris, are you ready for the next question? Oh, do you want, do you want me to do you want me to ask it? I, I was letting you all talk, man. Like, I, I'm ready to get I, into I, I, I am curious. I, no, I do. I, I'm just trying to step back a little because I know this is stuff that you really know a lot about. Um, but I, I was, I have been interested in, in from the beginning of, of David Green to come on. Um, I'm curious about your insights, you know, Michael, or sorry, uh, Miguel Cardona is the nominee for the secretary of education. Uh, so he's, you know, currently serves as commissioner of education for the state of Connecticut. Uh, you know, what, uh, what else do we know about him? And, and what do you think is his immediate priorities are going to be as secretary of education? Yeah. You know, he is a product of public education. And right. we know from the campaign trail that, that it was uh, very important to Biden that he that he, that the secretary of education have a have deep roots in public education. So that's you know right away you know a student of public education, a former teacher, former administrator, obviously a current uh, high level administrator at the state level. Um, we also know he's a he's a big advocate for public education. It's one thing to 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 serve in in administrative roles. It's another thing to to, to actively advocate, and uh, and he's certainly done that in his career. He's also interestingly a proponent of of career and technical education. And I say interestingly because I have noticed uh, in the last I don't know five to ten years, 
there has been a movement to 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 further integrate career and technical education into the quote unquote traditional high school path. Um, in fact, my own daughter uh, and son have attended a, a school that is that is uh, hybrid CTE uh, standard high school curriculum program uh, public school here in Arlington. Uh, and you could just sort of see the future of of this uh, leading towards more hands-on approaches to education. And I think that that certainly under this administration, uh, that trend will continue. Now, is that going to be the first thing he does? Absolutely not, because the first thing on everyone's plate in the Biden administration is dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, I think the biggest the biggest challenge that he's going to face is this. You know, well, I guess kind of two challenges. Number one, reopening public schools safely. Uh, and, and he's already talking about that, even though he hasn't been confirmed yet. He's, he's had his hearing. And that's certainly a lot of what he talked about. Uh, along with that, of course, is learning loss. Um, and that's that's something, you know, we, we in college admissions have talked a lot about. And, and, and that is that we know that no matter what the school, no matter what the what the population you're talking about, um, you know, there's going to be some learning loss in there. And, and for some populations, for those that have been traditionally underserved, uh, the threat is is real that there's been a lot of, of learning loss. In fact, we know in some states uh, that that students have have essentially lost contact uh, with their schools, and that's right. something that, that we got to figure out. So then, so beyond COVID, you know, then he's then he's probably two other things that, that we know uh, based on what he said early and some of his early appointments. You know, we got to deal with with educational equity, uh, and we know the entire administration is setting up to deal with 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 racial equity issues. Um, but we know we also know that the Department of Education is is going to take a good hard look at that. And then finally, uh, if you know me, if you've if you've talked to me ever, you've heard me talk about the damage that the for-profit colleges uh, oh, have yeah. done. Oh! Yeah, there I you go. I think we've bonded. I think we've bonded ah! many times, many times about the for-profit institutions. Yeah, and and you know, uh, uh, I don't know how many minutes in it, it took me to mention them, but. Um, but his early 24. appointment, 24, twenty-four. There we go. So we're right. We're right on schedule. The, yeah. the his, some of his early appointments have have pretty long history in in um, standing up for student protections uh, in this in this uh, on this topic. And so we expect uh, that he's going to going to tackle the some of the damage that the, the the DeVos administration did in in essentially rolling back a lot of student student protections or just simply not enforcing them which was frustrating. So so we're really I think there's a lot of cause for optimism uh, with the secretary uh, with the nominee for secretary at this point. Yeah, when I I mean just knowing that he was in the public school system and a product of the public school system, it just makes a difference. Like I don't care how much experience you have in this or that if you've been there and been in the trenches at some point, then you just have a different understanding. Absolutely, uh, you know, and I can say that as a as a lifetime public school student myself. I K through graduate school, all in in public schools, and I uh, never never changed that, and and was was proud to to give my kids the opportunity to to attend public schools because it, there's something about it that you just can't uh, you can't describe, you can't. Uh, you can't do it any justice just in a, you know, just in a few minutes, but but it's a great experience. Yeah, nonprofit or the uh, the uh, for-profit schools, man. One one administration owned them, and one administration <laughs> <laughs> maybe will protect uh, consumers and the general public from from them. Yeah. Yeah. Joel, so, what do you got next? So this is great. We can have like a million topics for David. I, I know. <laughs> so as COVID nineteen hopefully goes away and vaccinations increase. I know I get my second vaccine next weekend. Um, what, what do you think will be some long-term impacts on colleges? Um, you know, once this is over, how do you think, how, how will the world of college permanently be changed? What are some things that we can't go back uh, to the way things were, or, or we shouldn't go back to the way things were? Yeah, you know, I, the first thing I think about is how our Everyday lives are changing, and that and 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 the fact that 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 we're sitting here looking at each other on a screen uh, is is I think the biggest single change um, for for admissions. You know, y- you guys mentioned it in the in the lead in to the to the episode in that you know counseling and recruiting uh, have become online endeavors. Now, is that something we want to maintain? Not necessarily, because we know how much of a difference you can make when you when you work with someone one on one when you when you have a chance to see a college. But the fact is, the genie's out of the bottle on that one, and I think things like college fairs and 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 campus visits. I mean, that's you know, colleges now that they have the technology, now that they know it can be done. I doubt that there's going to be 
uh, a wholesale return to the old ways in, in college admission. Uh, another another issue specific to the college admission space, and we're I think we're going to talk about it a little later. But is you know we have to think about the factors we're using to evaluate students, and 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 you know are are we asking too much of students in schools uh, to to administer tests all year round to to you know to do the kinds of things that that they've traditionally been doing, and then finally I'd say that you know the 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 act of going to college itself. Uh, seems bound to change. Um, I know a lot of colleges have been struggling uh, with recruitment and getting students on campus. And I think for those colleges that that see online education as a possibility for them, I, I think they have an opportunity to to still engage the on-campus population, but perhaps maybe move more solidly into the online space and, and in a way that is um, pedagogically sound you know a lot of the for-profits one of chris speaking of the for-profits and joel the 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 one thing that i maintain they did they did not fundamentally change education they did not fundamentally change what needs to be taught to learn calculus for instance or history what they did do is they they proved that you could put education in an online platform Mm -hmm. for sure they didn't do it well necessarily but they did it now that this pandemic has forced the traditional college's hands, I, I think there's going to be a push more towards that high quality experience online. And that might open a lot of doors for a lot of colleges and a lot of students at the same time. So I can see those as being some of the big the big changes from here on out. Well, one of my best and toughest graduate classes was an online class at Western Kentucky University. It was a class on domestic violence. And it was really interesting. It was really challenging. And the guy, I mean, it was early on, but Dr. Greenwald um, did a great job. He did enough planning and preparation to make it a great experience. And this is, you know, 15 years ago or so. Yeah, so it yeah. can be done well. Absolutely. Right. right. Exactly. You know, there, there's one thing that I've thought about all year. And, and Chris and I actually talked about this the other day. Um, and, and I think my opinion has changed throughout the year. When, when we started this fall back and we were remote, um, and then our school went hybrid, so we had kids in a couple of days a week and that sort of thing, our college visits from our, our college recruiters and, and admissions folks went online. And I remember thinking to myself, this is going to be great because now they don't have to spend time driving from school to school and they can show videos and, and maybe they could be live on campus when they're broadcasting and things like that. And the one thing I, I didn't realize was the, the idea that kids might experience, for lack of a better term, Zoom fatigue, um, you know, and, and so what I thought would be like sort of the next iteration of college visits between schools and colleges, um, I'm not sure that, that it, it really worked out the way that I thought it would. Because I think in some ways kids engage less in that that setting. Um, and I've I, seen that. I've and seen I, that I was sure. going to say, I know Chris has called me yelling about that as well. Um, well, when everybody just turned their mics off, turned their cameras off, right. and didn't say anything or type anything. Right. And, and it's not that they're not listening. They're just... They were. They said thanks at the end. Like, right. I had no idea. I thought they just like went to the bathroom or something. Right. I didn't know they were there. <laughs> and so, you know, some things where I thought, oh, this is going to be great for the colleges. They can get to so many more kids. But I forgot about the human factor and, and something to be said for being in the same room with each other. Um, so I wonder yeah, if the some pendulum's got to swing back. It's right. got to swing back. I wonder if some, some things will come back. Um, the I, I mean, the, I'm Go sorry. Ahead, yeah, the, the, I, I, you, Chris, you're getting ready to say the genie being yeah. out of the bottle. You know, yeah. we, we know from our research at NACAC, for instance, that colleges cite getting a student on campus as being the most effective mm-hmm. indicator that they will attend, the most effective, single most effective recruitment tool that they had in, in the past. So, like I said, I don't think they're going to abandon it wholesale. Uh, you know, and, and students for for students' purposes, you know, it's a it's a great experience to be able to go and see either a person or the campus itself. Uh, you know, there's there's almost no substitute for that. Uh, and, and and like you said, I've experienced with uh, you know with with our college fairs with with my own with my own daughter who mm-hmm. is a current currently a junior. Those online formats are difficult. They're they're awkward. They're 
Oh, first thing I did when I got frustrated a couple of weeks ago about the first college <laughs> visit at a school I'm helping with right now. And Mike, as a note to listeners, um, these kids stay in dorms, so they have a controlled environment. So there's no reason on earth they wouldn't be able to have their their cameras on. But my, my daughter's a senior. She's like, they're just they're laying in bed, man. They don't want to put their camera on. <laughs> right. Like, like they just like they're fine. They're just they just don't want to. They don't. And, and if you just surprise them, like, hey, turn it on, they're like looking at each other, like, what, what, what? I, I, I'm not ready for that. <laughs> so, so my my mind is been. I think it's. I think maybe a key word here is is and. The word and. Yeah. So so now we have we have all these things. It's not an or. Or is done. There are no more ors. We we have all these different options. There, there, but there has to be an and, and that's where the there's the in person putting your feet on the ground on campus, whatever cliche you want to have, is 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 going to be is going to be needed. Um, I I have I have a question for David, and and I, it's partly because I was involved in in this whole my time on the board was mostly spent talking about. The NACAT Code of Ethics, because the first year on the board, we were building it and the committee came back. Uh, uh, Todd Reinhardt and his committee came back uh, with with this amazing. We were so happy, so proud of, of the new Code of Ethics. And and now with the Department of Justice uh, investigation and well, an inquiry, rather, sorry, uh, I had to learn from the, the board days. I guess I'm babbling about in that is now a guide for best practices. Like the ethical code is still what we feel like as an organization, the way people should act, but there's no enforcing behind it. And my thought is, is, is it going to slowly crack and one college will do something that, that goes against kind of that thought in the next and the next and the next, or do we feel like in general colleges are still going to be ethical in their admission practices? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and, it, you know, where we used to to be able to enforce uh, our our code, which for many students and families is probably a pretty pretty obscure thing, except when they except when they start thinking about things like the May first um, uh, exactly. national national decision date. Um, of course, that is no longer enforceable as a, as a as a provision in our code. But you know what we really hope uh, is that colleges will reflect on the question: Is this good for students? When they're making decisions now we the three of us who who've been in this business for a while will will probably chuckle maybe maybe grin a little bit at at, at thinking that all colleges will necessarily do that uh, but we also know that that colleges are are generally staffed with with good and well-meaning people and and we want to just what we want to do now is is do a combination of education communication and advocacy to make sure we we keep these principles out in front of everybody and, and keep that question. Is this good for students? And with the, consent, in the, with the consent decree, I mean, we've, we've got to be careful on how we do that too, right? As, a, as, a, as an organization and a staff. That's right. You know, when the Department of Justice uh, comes after you and says, you know, we think you have been restraining trade. Right. Uh, and we, are, we believe that's strongly enough in that that we're going to file suit against you. You do have to you, you you do pretty quickly wake up to the to the fact that this is for real. This is they're not kidding. This is you know. At, at first, I think we all had the reaction of you know when you think of antitrust, you think of you uh, you know monopolies. You think of yeah. of you know nineteenth century rail monopolies and 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 or Coke and Pepsi price fixing or something. Exactly. <laughs> you know you don't think of of NACAC. So, uh, but but you know. We went through the process. We are where we are. And, and at this point, I think, you know, Chris, to your question about whether colleges will, will continue to, to practice in this way or, or, you know, in keeping with best practices, the one thing that they really need to think about right now that, that perhaps the NACAC Code of Ethics used to provide a thin layer of protection from is the fact that now with NACAC no longer in that in that enforcement space, now you've got two much bigger considerations. Number one is, is state and federal regulation. You know, if you start treating students badly, you're going to have state and federal legislators coming after you. Right, yeah. um, and we've seen it happen before. The other thing is, of course, you have a reputational issue to, to consider. Uh, we all saw what happened in, in the Varsity Blues scandal. Of course, that wasn't that wasn't so much about getting through the admission office as it was getting right. around it. But the fact of the matter is admission is a hot topic. And if you put yourself out there, if you if you if you treat students badly, 
uh, it will get out there and you better be ready for the blowback. So that's, you know, I think that right. those are things that everybody has to consider. Yeah, I agree. And if it does happen, I think it'll come from departments, not admissions offices. One thing we've learned, though, and I'm curious if, if there's a place for NACAC to, to educate, we've, we've learned more about institutional pressures and, um, you know, institutional goals from people beyond the admissions office. And so I'm wondering if there's a way to, to educate the board of regent members, the VPs, the presidents, you know, that, that sometimes have, have those goals that may not be completely in sync with maybe what the, the goals of the admissions office might be. Yeah, you know, in fact, I think most, I, I talk about this all the time. I, I think a lot of families think that admission officers wield ultimate power. <laughs> and and the, the hard truth of it is they have very little. Uh, yes. And, yeah. and, and so stay tuned because we have been talking about that very issue at NACAC. We, we would like to develop a program where we can bring admission deans in with vice presidents, uh, provosts, presidents, and trustees or regents. Mm-hmm to really do a more holistic job of showing people why good practice in admissions is critical for their institution in I so think many that's ways. hundred percent. So good practices are actually good business practices. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I think that's where the motivation probably needs to come from. Um, cool. Joel, what do you, you got another question for I, David? Do I have another question? Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> I was born with questions. Uh, so with the retirement of Lamar Alexander, uh, Senator from Tennessee and, Actually, when I was a kid, I grew up not too far from Nashville, so I remember him being governor of Tennessee, but that's another story. Um, So now that he's retired, who do you think the players are in Congress in terms of education? And and what do you think some of the main priorities in terms of education will be from this new 117th Congress? Yeah, you know, the the big four, as I'll call them now, uh, are Representative Bobby Scott, who's the chair of the Education and Labor Committee on the House side, uh, the minority, um, uh, the ranking minority member there is Virginia Fox. Uh, Bobby Scott is from Virginia. Uh, Virginia Fox is from North Carolina. They're, they will clearly exercise an outsized role in the House. Um, in fact, Bobby Scott is already out with a couple of bills, uh, one dealing with equity and another dealing with uh, with funding, uh, emergency funding. So so those are the big two, the, the big ones in the House. And then in the Senate, of course, you've got uh, with the Democrats in control now, um, Senator Patty Murray from Washington State will be the chair of that education committee and, and, and Senator Richard Burr, also from North Carolina. So you've got between Virginia and North Carolina, you've got three quarters of your of your education leadership. Um, and then I think outside of uh, Richard Burr being the minority, uh, the ranking minority member on that on the Senate committee, I think outside of those big four. Um, You've got, I think my sense is that the progressives in both chambers are going to play a pretty pivotal role in education policy, because what we've got in terms of priorities, first of all, again, COVID relief, can't say that enough. Mm-hmm. COVID relief is the big deal. Equity is the second thing close behind, uh, because in some ways they're related. Um, and, and, in, and in those things, you have wrapped up things like student loan policy. You know, do we forgive student loan debt? Do we do we move to something that NACAC would like to see, which is to more towards like a free higher education system, uh, just like the K-12 system? Uh, so I think there's going to be a lot of movement in that direction uh, in this in this Congress. And I think, you know, there's going to be other issues that that follow along with co- with COVID relief, such as uh, waiving test requirements. You know, several states have, have petitioned the government to waive their accountability uh standardized tests under the oh, elementary yeah, and secondary nice. act. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so that, I think those are going to be some of the, be, be the big sort of hot button issues as we start the 117th Congress. It's complicated, isn't it? Absolutely. Like, like everything's difficult to figure out. There's so much to consider. I guess that's back to the reflection. Something I've learned over this, over this time is just how complicated things are when you start looking at it from multiple lenses. Yeah. What a, so test optional was mentioned. Um, we did an episode on that before before COVID, actually, like right before COVID. And are we are we seeing the the slow demise of standardized testing in college admission? Do you think any something will replace it, if anything at all? You know, I think I think in a way we are seeing a bit of a demise. Um, and and again, you're right; it is slow. That the the big 
catalyst, of course, being the pandemic. Uh, and I think you all would may agree that for colleges, one of the toughest things about going test optional was simply getting to the decision. Uh, yes. The actual process mm-hmm. of doing it was almost an afterthought, not an afterthought, it was the, it, but it was a distant second behind getting all the players on board. You mentioned, Joel, the trustees and the regents right. and everybody, the administrators, alumni, you name it. Uh, the pandemic pretty much uh, took that whole process out. It, 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 it reduced it down to a simple, you know, do we do this? Yes, no. <laughs> it's interesting because, you know, decisions can be made faster. Um, Absolutely. You know, <laughs> like if you think about, you, you could have just done that without a pandemic. Correct. <laughs> but people don't operate that way. Well, and before the pandemic, you had colleges like, well, we need like a three-year study to see if this is feasible. And then no, as, soon as, as, soon as the pandemic yes. happened, like, all right, we're doing it. You know. Well, and I think I think that the the what what I'm seeing now is the and we've seen it for a long time, but people and I'll say everybody from the public to lawmakers to trustees feel like somehow admission tests are so integral to college admission that if you take them away, somehow it's not legitimate anymore. Somehow it's not really college admission. We know that that's wrong. We know right. that that's not the case. But I think part of what comes after this, part of what comes after the pandemic, is that there will be a, a process that I think might even shape up along partisan lines, where people are so attached to the tests as part of the admission process that they see removing them as some sort of stunt or gimmick or, or you know, reduction in merit in the process. And I think that all of those three-year studies and and you know contemplation ahead of our, our normal processes outside of a pandemic are aimed at trying to deconstruct that. Uh, so we may have to do some of that work on the back end, we being the, the, the profession, because whether or not colleges maintain the tests, we have to make sure that everybody understands you can do admission without tests. It's a fact. It's not, it's not an opinion. It's a fact. The question Correct. is, do you want to do it or not? Correct. Correct. It's yeah. I, essentially, using these tests to predict future success uh, is, I personally don't feel it's the best predictor of future success, to, to state it mildly. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of opposition, and I think ingrained is a great way to say that. Yeah. Yeah, totally ingrained. And you, we look at the case of, of, of Florida's um, public colleges, that their, their board of, of trustees has uh, uh, stubbornly resisted calls to go test optional because right. of the pandemic. And it and you can see that it is a partisan issue. Um, and, oh, and, for, yeah. yeah. And it, it's just something that I think, you know, we have to be patient with. And we, you know, again, NACAC takes a position. If colleges want to, to, to require the test, that's up to them. We ask that they do the research. They figure out, Chris, if the research suggests that they get any predictive validity out of it. And mm-hmm. most research shows that the, the, the bump that you get from tests that, that is separate from your high school grades is pretty minimal. Uh, so right. we really, you know, we really urge some caution with colleges as to whether they want to impose those requirements on students. Well, and AP the College Board was super great this week and National School Counselors Week that we just wrapped up uh, before this recording to to drop a six week testing window on all the <laughs> AP coordinators across the country. So that was that was that was pleasant. Yeah. Nice. Nice job, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Shifting gears a little bit. This this is probably one of the biggest uh, topics out there, I think. Oh yeah, I know what's coming. All right. So the current college loan debt is how much, Chris? One point five trillion dollars. Oh, I think we've said that since episode one, um, and it and of course it's increasing. So uh, the first part of my question is, what can be done to curb those college costs and increasing debt? You know, the first thing that that NACAC advocates for. It, when we when we think about that question is we we got to do more to to contribute public funding to higher education um, where we where we have traditionally played is we need to boost need-based aid like the Pell Grant we need to get students who need the money more of it from uh, from our state and federal governments uh, but what really I think what, what we've started talking about more recently is that we really I think we really have to start looking at at public higher education as something that is a public good that should be provided for free as we do K-12 education. 
Because what we've done in this country over the last 50 years is we've gone from a a model when Lyndon Johnson uh, originally signed the Higher Education Act back in the 60s. The vision was that if if someone was in need, was in financial need, they could go to a four-year public college for free. That would be the that would be what the Pell Grant would do. It would cover it. It would cover the whole thing, and it did back right. in the sixties. But that was that was the only time it did. Yeah, <laughs> right. But once yeah. the seventies yeah. started, the, the the value of the Pell Grant started slipping, and states started reducing the funding that they offered for their public institutions uh, at, on a per capita basis. They you know, the amount right. they spend has actually gone up over the years. The problem is that hasn't kept pace with the demand or the need uh, from colleges. Uh, to, to provide the, the level of education that they, that they, uh, that they have and, and that they, that they need to do to provide uh, those students with a, with a good experience. So we're calling on state governments to go back and recommit themselves to free public higher education, because what we've done since we, since the sixties is we've, we've increasingly said, Hey, rather than this being sort of a public good, we're going to, we're just going to make, we're just going to essentially impose a user fee. If you want to go to higher education, you can borrow to do it. We might help you borrow. But ultimately, the sure. cost falls on your head. And, and we think that's got to change. So part two to this, and, and I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second. Um, so I know this week I, I read about some proposals uh, to potentially um, put legislation in for student loan forgiveness. Um, I saw one proposal that was up to $10,000. I saw another one that would be up to $30,000. Um, what would... What would you say to those who would argue against that and say that that students should have known what they were signing up for when they took out the student loans or to the people who did pay off their student loans? Yeah, you know, I I think it's important to um, to acknowledge that from a holistic policy standpoint, simply forgiving student debt and then moving on as if nothing else was you know, was wrong or that we, you know, if that's the only thing we did, that would not be a good example of a systemic reform to higher education. Cause you're essentially right. just taking a snapshot. You're saying these people get this money wiped out and now we're going to move on. Um, mm-hmm. So really in our minds, we, we do support uh, student loan forgiveness and I'll tell you why in a second, but the, what, what it needs to be paired with is this recommitment to funding higher education, because what's going to happen is if you don't do that, you just, now you're just resetting, and you get the you're whole next, over on yeah, the all. whole next cohort is going to take on more loans. So that so you know, in it in and of itself, it's it's not a it's not a comprehensive reform. In terms of where we are right now as a country and where our economy is, any debt that you can forgive for someone is going to help them individually. Right. And I think that's where we come from when we're looking at the student loan forgiveness uh, issue. And I, I I suppose that you know one thing we've tried to do over the years for the people who have paid it off. Uh, who are who have paid their student loans off, who have been working very hard to do that. We've advocated for policies to make it easier. So, you know, the income-based repayment, you, know, you only pay a portion of your income. And then after a certain amount of time, your loan is forgiven. Right. Uh, we've, we've advocated for lower interest rates. Uh, we've advocated for the elimination of the private student lending um, program within the federal loan program. Uh, so where you get the banks out of it and, and then the federal government becomes the lender for for student loans, uh, for federal student loans. So, you know, I think we've tried to try our best along the way to make sure that sort of past and, and, and current borrowers are treated well. Uh, but moving forward, you know, we, we have reached a crisis point. This one point five trillion is is a major, major um, weight around our necks. Uh, and, and anything we can do to alleviate that in the short term, I think will help individuals. And in terms of the long term, if we can get the recommitment to, to spending money for public higher ed, then then we can right the ship. So speaking of making things happen, you are one of the big forces in setting up and implementing the NACAC Hill Day along with your along with your staff. Uh, something Joel and I have done a couple of times. I've done it twice. It was advocating on Capitol Hill was something so amazing and so different. And I'm not this uh, political type person. And it was awesome for me. Uh, if you could explain to listeners what Hill Day is and why you think it's such an important day. Yeah, you know, Hill Day is is a is a uh, really a couple of days, I guess, each each uh, e- either winter or, or early spring uh, that we bring our members to Washington D.C. 
Uh, and we do a little education. We talk to them about the issues. A lot of them we talked about today. Um, you know, we give them some education and we, we ask them to go to Capitol Hill and meet with their members of Congress and talk to them about two things primarily. One, their experiences, their challenges in what they do from day to day, and also the policy priorities that, that, that our association has put forward. So the Pell Grant and more money for school counselors and things like that. And I think the thing that makes it so magical for me is that, like you said, Chris, you get a lot of people who come in who may never have been interested in politics or policy. They may have never visited with a member of any legislature, whether it's their town hall, their uh, you know city city government, their state government, or the federal government. And in, a lot of them come in and they're really nervous. They really are really psyched out about you know about going up on Capitol Hill. You know, this is the big time, right? But the the secret of it all is, and I tell everybody this ahead of time, is that you know what, you're the constituent, you're the person that elected these people, and what you're going over there to do is you're going over there to share with them the challenges that you face and your students face on a day-to-day basis. And then you're going to give them some ideas about how you can alleviate that because they have priorities. You know, the, the, the members of Congress want to help their students and families. They want to make things better in this country, mostly. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, we kind of have to assume that about most of them. Right. Sure. Um, and, and the thing that's so rewarding about it, that's so magical is that, you know, I see everyone nervous before they go up there and then they come back. And they are, it's, it's as if they're walking on air. Because I was they, elated, yeah. elated afterwards. And, and I tell everybody, you see, I told you you could do it. And, and the, the, real, the real key, and this is for everybody who's listening, is that you are the expert. You know, I've worked in, in, in and around Capitol Hill. Those folks are a mile wide and an inch deep. They know a lot about, yeah. you know, a, lot, a little bit about a lot of things, but, but they are craving the kind of input that you can give them. And they, frankly, because you're their constituent, you know, you are their boss. So th- that's, it's, it's a way in which most associations, in fact, um, articulate themselves to Capitol Hill. And it's, it's so invigorating. I could probably go two hours with, with some of my favorite stories. But the bottom line in all of them is that to see people empowered, to see people go up there and do the thing that maybe they feared most uh, at the beginning of the day and then come back and have that sense of accomplishment is just amazing. Well, we were in Kentucky, so we were at Mitch McConnell's office. Yeah, and and his and his um, Joel, what would be the the his aide? Yeah, his his <laughs> his staffer that's in charge of education. Yeah, his staffer who's in charge uh, did stop at our second meeting we had the second year I went and ask our opinion on a couple items, which which was which was cool because the first year I thought he they kind of blew us off, and the second year. Same, some of the same people, Joel in particular, was there and, you know, asked our opinion. And mm-hmm. I thought, you know, it's really all cool to hear, to, like, to have that experience. Well, and, and of course, I, I'm going to try not completely geek out on this. But I will say, like, the thing that excites me about it is this is the way government is supposed to work. You know, people have issues that 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 are important to them and they petition the government and they talk to the government about it. And, you know, the, the, the people, and for our listeners, you know, I'm going to stay very nonpartisan with this and I'll explain why in a few minutes, but you know, you had people that are from a variety of opinions uh, on the political spectrum, but going into this event, I, I think even with our experience, it was kind of like, what are some of the common things that we can we can talk about, you know? And if the the focus is on helping students, it, it didn't matter whether you were you were Republican, Democrat, Independent, somewhere in the middle. Everybody wants to help students, okay? And so maybe how we get there um, might be different depending on your political beliefs. But at least being able to sit down and have a conversation about those issues, to me, that it's empowering. It, it's what government is supposed to be about. Um, and, and to be able to just, you know, be sitting in the, the lobby of your, your congressman or your senator and then, and then be taken back and, and the person, like, they have their notebook open and they're taking notes and, and they give you their card and they say, hey, I, you know, can we call you? And then weeks down the road, yeah, they actually do call you about something. 
you know, um, to, to me, that's, you know, it, it's, it's what it's about. It's, you know, Joel, you're, you're absolutely right. This is what government is for. This is, this is what representative government is all about. And I think that one thing that's important for people to remember is that, uh, governance is a complex thing. Uh, what you see on TV uh, in the politics of, of the of the day is not governance. It's it is it is largely theater. Uh, sometimes it breaks into the rea- into the realm of reality, and, and that's when it can get serious. But um, ultimately, you know, the, we we live in a representative democracy, and 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 as NACAC always does, you know, we we make a very serious distinction between issues you know, differences based on policy. And differences based on politics. Some of our some of our greatest achievements in my twenty years here have have come with bipartisan support. Uh, Richard Burr, I mentioned earlier, um, the the ranking minority member on the Senate Help Committee, uh, was a co sponsor of a bill that we wrote called the Pathways to College Act a number of years ago. Uh, we couldn't have gotten that bill uh, onto the on, you know in, into into writing without his help. Uh, and so it does it you you really do have to treat it as a as a as a very different way of working, uh, if you if you want to get something done. Oh man, I could talk about this stuff all day. I mean, seriously, <laughs> uh, I know you could. This is the greatest day ever. That's you want to you want to David. Uh, we have David Hawkins on our episode. I know man. this like, is like a dream. <laughs> what the heck? All the other podcasters will be really jealous. All right, Chris, <laughs> do you want to get to some some final serious oh, yeah. questions? Yeah, so you know, we we try to help our guests prepare a little bit ahead of time, uh, but there are some things I held back, and and you know, David was not able to prepare for some of these questions, and and they are they are a lot more fun than, than the questions, not 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 more fun. This was a lot of fun, uh, lighter, more personal, maybe. So so these these are my. Well, we pull the curtain. We pull the curtain and discover the true wonk. That's right. Yes. That's right. Yeah. So Joel wrote all of the all of the 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 previous questions, and then here's here are the questions I wrote. David, have you ever been skydiving? No, sir. If if you, would you do it? Uh sure. Why not? Sweet. Would you tandem skydive with me? <laughs> Is that an invitation or just in theory? Just in no, theory. Of course, Chris. I'd skydive with you. <laughs> all right. Uh, what is your favorite article of clothing you own? Wow. You know, I'm not a Bill Belichick fan, but I, I am a, I am a hoodie person. When I come home from work, I, it's a, it, it, the hoodie goes on and I have a number of them, so I'd hate to pick a favorite, but I'm, I'm going to say the hoodie. All right. Which is ironic uh, since he, as we're recording, you're wearing a hoodie right now. I, absolutely. So, so am I. And, <laughs> and has anyone to follow up on your answer, has anyone at NACAC ever seen you live in a hoodie or is it basically a shirt and tie and jacket oh no we you know uh folks at NACAC have seen me in a hoodie because occasionally we will do college day at at the office ah. and so i'll wear uh sometimes i wear, wear william and mary which is my alma mater of course mm-hmm. and and uh, more recently i've started taking to wearing gettysburg college because that's where my son is so oh yeah so i've yeah. got a couple of couple of favorites do you know the arsenal fight song I'm ashamed to say that I do not. But isn't that your team? It is. It is my team. Didn't they do a, have a good winning streak lately? <laughs> you know, winning is is relative. <laughs> they did. They did. They did win a few in a translation, row. Translation, no. <laughs> yeah, translation, no. Let's. Yeah, let's. Well, I saw they uh, tied and then they lost, but I think prior to that they had won. Prior like, to that, they had a, a bit of a run. Yeah. All right. Uh, boxers or briefs? Boxers. Awesome. Beach or mountains? beach i grew up in the mountains chris you it, this this has deep roots because it goes back to our beer sink conversation but yeah. i grew up in the mountains so the beach is always my favorite place to go all right cool uh this is important to for joel and i would you ever consider shaving your head and growing facial hair would you have the facial hair so yeah i got the facial be... hair yeah i mean sure well I'd, I'd, I'd consider shaving my head i'm not that attached to what little hair i have left in <laughs> fact if people could see me on on camera they'd see that my forehead is is it's starting to take over uh, <laughs> to the extent that my kids tell me I have a five head because it's larger than four. Oh, <laughs> very good. Oh man. All right. So what's the most thing you've done in say the last the most fun hour, thing. hour, hour, the most fun thing you've done like in the last hour. 
<laughs> well, talking to you guys, I guess, would be the, the pinnacle pretty much of my my career, certainly of the last hour. <laughs> All right. Look, if you ever I, I'm just curious if you're like me in this way. Do you ever get so excited about something that you just can't sleep the night before? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I get, and it's both the good kind and the bad kind. I get really amped up and nervous about things, but I also get really jazzed about, you know, if I'm going to go. Uh, I like to travel, actually. I and, and traveling for NACAC has been one of the coolest things to to mm-hmm. go out and do conferences and, and see people. So yeah, I get I get very excited about that. And I just thought of this one because I remember something you said to me a long a long time ago. We'll just we'll end with this last one. Uh, you told me you loved Asheville. Because you're like kind of an inner hippie at heart. Talk about that for a second. Yeah, you know, I I, I joke with everybody that I that I'm, I'm I'm kind of a hippie in disguise. I've got the, the closely cropped hair. Everybody thinks I'm military, frankly. Yeah. Uh, but no, I I am uh, I I love me some Asheville. I love places that are quirky. I love places that are just off the beaten path because I th- I just think that's where the real variety, the real spice is in life. You you, you got to embrace the differences. You got to embrace. Um, uh, what what is truly creative and 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 the, you know uh, uh, there are many places like Asheville around the country but that's that's one of my favorites. Cool, I have all kinds of questions, but yeah, we're gonna stop now because I can see where where these questions could go. So, <laughs> David Hawkins, thank you so much. You have an open invitation to be on this podcast anytime. Uh, if you give us a call and say, hey, let's talk. You're on the next well, episode automatically. Well, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here, and uh, I will be happy to do it anytime you anytime you guys say the word. I'll be here. All right, so let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back with our four lenses. Welcome back to Get Schooled by Reeves and Ford. Chris, let's hit the four lenses today to address all types of listeners for this podcast. All right, so what does it mean for the following groups? Mm -hmm. If you are an independent or school counselor, listen up. Join NACAC. It's the National Association for College Admission Counseling. Also join your state or regional affiliate, which for me was Kentucky ACAC, Association for College Admission Counseling. My understanding of college admissions personally just changed greatly once I became active in these two organizations. And I do emphasize the word active in these organizations. Um, That's where I really began to learn. They house our ethics. They provide professional development from from leaders in the industry. And NACAC is the standard for all things college admissions, not Reddit or YouTube or whatever. <laughs> NACAC, go there. Right. If you're at a university, advocate. Take the time to send your admission staff and anyone else to state and federal legislators. We are still, believe it or not, a country of the people. And if your voice is not heard, then it's not heard. I know most of you do this, but I'll never forget how powerful it is to show up at the Russell Building in Washington and speak to your senator, as we discussed earlier. Colleges and universities are first and foremost a public good, as David mentioned earlier. And it's important for our lawmakers to understand and support that. If we don't speak up, they will lose sight of that. If you're a parent or if you're a student, I'm combining both this week because I think my advice is going to be the same for both groups. Um, As a social studies teacher who taught history and government over the years, one thing I believe in strongly, and I still do to this day, um, is that when I was in the classroom, I never put my beliefs or values politically on my kids. Um, It was important to me to teach them multiple perspectives and arguments relating to an issue, and then to let them make their own decisions about the issue based upon what they learned. Um, Sometimes students would try to guess or get me to slip up and indicate what my personal political point of view was, and I would often laugh at them, you know, as they were trying to come up with it. Um, You know, but for me, it was about teaching all sides of an issue. Um, So to parents and students, pay attention to the workings of government, both at the federal and at the state and local levels, including as it relates to educational issues. Become an informed citizen, 
elect people to positions that you feel will do their best to support those issues that you find most important and be able to defend your position while listening to and appreciating other points of view. Learn to agree to disagree, which is something that we've talked about before and, and something I feel like as a country we need to get back to. Um, so learn to agree to disagree, but the most important part of that is to learn. Uh, as we've all heard before from English author Evelyn Beatrice Hall and not Voltaire um, in 1906, I may disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Um, just make sure you're knowledgeable about the issues when you do say it. Well said, Joel. Let's take a quick break, and we're back for our very last segment, Word of Wisdom. Welcome back to Get Schooled by Reason Ford, where we are going to finish up today with Chris's words of wisdom. Chris, what do you have for us today? Well, this episode's word of wisdom comes from someone else. Our last episode, as a matter of fact. Brennan Bernard mentioned this uh, at the end of our interview, and it stuck with me as we prepared for this one. Uh, the word is gratitude. There's a lot of stress in the world, 2020, absolutely crazy in many ways, whether within the college admission landscape or anywhere else in the world. Things are not good right now, and and it makes us... It makes it even more important to note what is good uh, for each of us individually and to acknowledge what we're thankful for, whatever it is. I'm thankful not only for David's coming on the podcast, but for his friendship over the years. Uh, I'm thankful for my partner in crime, Joel, uh, and for Mike, both for their work on this project uh, and, and for their friendship as well. Nice. And remember... You can always listen to Get Schooled on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and Amazon. You can follow us on Twitter at, at GetSchooled3 and on the internet at AskMrReeves.com slash GetSchooled. So, Joel, tell us about our next episode. So, for our next episode, we're going to look at a topic that, frankly, neither one of us knows much about, uh, which are the episodes that we actually enjoy the most. Uh, because we get to learn, and it makes us better. Uh, so we're going to learn about gap year experiences, uh, what they are, what are the benefits of them, and maybe how professionals can best advise students on how to have an effective gap year experience. That's next time on Get Schooled by Reeves and Ford. We'll see you then. Bye, everybody. want people to enjoy themselves while they listen also all right you ready joel i'm swallowing my coffee now buddy back in the game